0: Um, you know, most people don't want to see the future. Most people would rather wait for it to come to them. And my thing is, no, dude, march out to meet it. You know, why wait for bad shit to happen when you can potentially, and the odds are against you, but what do you got to lose? You know, you only got one life, man, rock, go for it, you know?
1: Hey everyone, we're here on the Founder Hour podcast with Robert Egger, who is currently the founder and CEO of LA Kitchen, but he's had several projects in the past that we'll talk about. I met Robert uh, a few years ago. I was working at the mayor's office and I, I was involved with some reentry initiatives. And I got to meet you and you know learned about the work that you were doing here at LA Kitchen. Um, and I'm excited to kind of talk to you about that and how it's grown and the impact that the work that you've done has had. So we're so happy for, you know, you to be on the show with us. And we're thankful that you invited us into your lovely space here at LA Kitchen. Yeah,
0: man. Well, you know, A, I I love talking about the work we do. uh, But at the same time, I love hearing it in the background. You know, it's kind of fun because, man, this was a big, big, fat dream, you know, coming out to uh, a city, even though I grew up here, to kind of, you know, leave Washington, D.C., where I lived for 40 years, and come out here to build something brand new from scratch Mm -hmm. and to hear it. You know, to be able mm-hmm. to hear the people uh, right outside the door where we're talking while we're having a great conversation about past, present and future. Mm-hmm. Man, it's a great Saturday morning. Let's get it on.
1: Let's do it. Um, you know, recently we obviously, you know, heard about the passing of Anthony Bourdain, and that was obviously a pretty tragic day for, I think, all of humanity. Um, you know, I was on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and just even in person. My dad was devastated. He he, he watched Anthony Bourdain every day, reruns, all the shows he knew him, um, and so did you ever have the opportunity to meet Anthony Bourdain, and, you know, what were your interactions like, and, you know, what kind of man was he?
0: Well, dude, he was exactly what you saw on TV, you know, he was one of those refreshing people that he could be brusque, you know, he was very, uh, you know, he did not suffer fools gladly, but, you know, I was introduced uh, to him by my great friend, uh, Jose Andreas, chef, uh, Jose and you know we've worked together for about 25 years and we started doing as most nonprofits do an event every year and jose reached out and tony being a former addict himself was really down for the idea of coming to dc and he came i think three if not four years in a row Mm -hmm. um and participated in this event we had uh the capital food fight and it was it was a riot man you know he and jose would do that that whole battling thing on stage you know they'd make fun of each other and anthony would uh, you know, drop dozens of F-bombs, which excited everyone and mm-hmm. stayed Washington, D.C. But he was just a really decent guy. In fact, he came and did one of his episodes uh, at D.C. Kitchen oh. and actually went out to lunch with one of our graduate employees, Bo, who, uh, you know, Bo and Anthony went and had crabs down on Main Avenue. And like I said, he 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 lent a hand in the kitchen. He clearly helped us raise a lot of money and a lot of awareness. Um, You know, but he just brought a a, a real great sense of of, uh, authenticity Mm -hmm. uh, to the world. I think everybody, man, everybody was fucked up yesterday. It's still hard to understand. Because, you know, like I've said about a lot of people, you know, everybody liked Anthony. Everybody wanted to be his friend. Everybody would have held his hand. But sometimes everybody's not enough, you know. And so anyway, I just think it's another reason that I love hearing the people outside in the kitchen today. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, what people oftentimes... Misunderstand is Anthony's really wasn't a food show; it was a, a human show yeah, yeah. that used food. And you know what was wild, man, is you know Gazans loved Anthony Bourdain because he brought people to Gaza, yeah. you know, and showed the humanity behind people that oftentimes we view through a lens, a variety of lenses. Mm-hmm. So whether it was his work on behalf of um, the people, the you know Hispanic Latino cultures that work in the back, I mean, he was a, you know he's just always been really um trying to figure out how to get people together through food so again man i think for many of us whether it's uh you know our dear friend jose who's down in guatemala right now trying to help people affected by the volcano here at la kitchen back at dc kitchen i mean there's just an army of people whether it's the best restaurants in the world or the 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 you know sweatiest kitchen out there there's just people out there kind of keeping his uh, his legacy alive by bringing people to a shared table yeah
2: so, growing up in Washington D.C., what was the goal as a as a kid?
0: Ben, you know, it's funny. I grew up here in 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 Southern California as a kid, right? Okay. And we moved to D.C. and mm-hmm. I was really bummed, man, because I wanted to be a surfer. You know, and here I was then in Springfield, Virginia. You know. <laughs> Pop it implied we were moving to D.C., you know, yep. and I, in your head you're thinking, you know, 1602 Pennsylvania Avenue, you know, and it was Springfield, Virginia. <laughs> and it's just my mother sat me down and said, hey, man, one of my favorite movies is on. And we watched the movie Casablanca. And, man, as soon as I saw Rick's nightclub, it's like, bada-bing, I want to open a nightclub. You know, I want to be Love that it. guy, you know. And so I, I literally, at the age of 13, just got fixated on this idea of opening a nightclub. And I started sneaking out at night and going to nightclubs 13, um, huh? Yeah. No, dude, it was fun. I mean, well, That was a little bit later, you know, when yeah. we could actually drive. But, yeah. you know, I, it was a great interesting time because you were seeing these transitions from, you know, uh, anyway, it was just, it was, it was, there was a lot of old school nightclubs back then. You know, you had old school comedians, you had, you know, just not non-amplified music, you know, so it was just, it was a playground mm-hmm. to go out and, and plus when I did come of age and, uh. Started going out. It was a glorious time because punk rock exploded in the in the mid to late seventies. But then, out of out of nowhere, the whole world exploded with music. I mean, you, at a certain point, you think, okay, uh, you know, I've heard everything you can hear. You know, but then suddenly you have computer music. Kraftwerk comes out of Germany. Yep. Out comes Prince out of nowhere and reinvigorates you know uh, soul for lack of a better soul rock and roll music. Um, you know, obviously Bob Marley, you know, mm-hmm. whose music really became popular after he passed. But at the same time, I ended up working with a lot of jazz legends who, um, really impressed me because, you know, I'd go to work in this jazz club because mm-hmm. I really wanted to learn what rich people, if you wanted to open the kind of nightclub I wanted to open was really more about not booking bands, but really creating a big experience. So I want I really wanted to play with, um, like, like a chef would, I wanted to play with music, theater, art, dance, comedy. How many different ways can you get? And and it's really important to understand what inspired me about this idea of a club was, and I won't go too far into this, but if you look at Rick's, the nightclub, right? There's there's the immediate freedom that it provided for people who just wanted to go out for a night and pretend it was the way that it used to be. But every conversations at Rick's involved, how do I get out of here to the metaphorical freedom of America? So I became, I was fascinated by the duality of the Trojan horse. It, it looked and functioned like a high-level nightclub. It was everything a nightclub should be, but it was a disguise for something bigger, right? That's what fascinated me. So for me, I and this, was... And you have these thoughts at like 13 to 15 years old? Well, you have to understand, man, I was, I was 10 in 1968, 50 years ago this week when Robert Kennedy was assassinated, Yeah. Um, you know, two months after Dr. King. Um, so I came of age and awareness at a time when there was some heavy shit going on and I chose very early what I wanted to be the, the team I wanted to play on. And what know? team was that uh, making the world a better place for live team, you know, mm-hmm. um, the fuck normal routine, you know, I, I just wanted to be part of, of, of people who worked day in and day out to make the world better. And, and really, man, it, it, it's, it was those, those wild things, but it was also everything that they taught me, whether it was in the, in the cub scouts whether it was in my civics class, whether it was in church, everything said you're you're here to leave a mark, to, not a, an ego mark, but a, a better world mark, right? This is, I think, what Tony's legacy is, in respect, is that idea of you're not here for your own self-pleasure. You're, you're here to, you know, in theory, you can choose. Do you want to be, you know, a, a part of making the world better, or are you just going to try and insulate yourself and, mm-hmm. and, and try to create your own little island? So, but what intrigued me was, that you got killed if you were Robert Kennedy or Dr. King, but how could their ideas stay alive? And so I became intrigued by this Trojan horse, this idea of maybe, and and this has a lot to do with Barry Gordy and Motown. Mm-hmm. Because if you listen to a lot of Motown records, which my parents did, mm-hmm. like many people of that generation, they were very um, afraid of... Mm-hmm the changes they were seeing. Because, again, when you think about most people who had white people who had this little set thing, suddenly there was the environmental movement, there was the civil rights movement, there was worker rights, there was women's rights. So many people were really afraid of those changes. But Barry Gordy put those ideas to music and made it danceable, and suddenly people could hear it. So for me, a nightclub was about how can you disguise powerful ideas as entertainment and get people to hear new ideas um, through again, comedy. When I was a kid, you had whether it was Richard Pryor, the Smothers mm-hmm. Brothers, or Flip Wilson. You had huge All in the Family. You know, mm-hmm. I know a, that's a a show many people might not know about, but th- these were these were ways in which really I think um, diabolical entertainers used their medium of comedy. Right. You know, so that's what I did, right? But like everybody in the business, I had to learn the business, and part of learning the business was the laborious inventory. That where you went back and you had to literally mm-hmm. count your liquor bottles, count everything. Um, and this was before modern kind of gadgets, you know. Mm-hmm. So literally, it was pencils and mm-hmm. paper. Um, but I knew how much food we threw away. And that, interesting enough, came into play one night when I volunteered to serve the homeless, like many people in the 80s. And this is in D.C.? Yeah, this is back in, in Washington. So here I am. I'm running nightclubs. What's the nightclub called? La- well, it was. I, I worked at a couple, um, but you know, I worked at a place. Uh, if, if you're in D.C., you know, but it was a Child Herald, where the Springs, Bruce Springsteen and the Ramones played their first shows, and we're talking about a, a hundred people club. It was mm-hmm. a little little bar. Yeah. Um, and then another place, Charlie Bird's, which was Charlie Bird was along with uh, uh, Stan Getz mm-hmm. went down to uh, Brazil and worked with Gal Gilberto to do the Girl from Ipanema. And, but these weren't uh, your your nightclubs. No, you? no, no. I was just a student. You and know, they're I still was,
2: they're still in existence now. Some are.
0: Um, no, actually, most of them are done now. I mean, you know, it's Club, fun to clubs watch. Clubs are a short, short life. Well, like most clubs do although it's yeah. fun to see old friends who uh, my great friend Seth Hurwitz, who owns the 930 Club, and now the Anthem has done a tremendous uh, service and business keeping music, independent music, alive in D.C. So anyway, mm-hmm. um, but I, like many people, started to see homelessness. Uh, and like many people, you know, was empathetic but didn't know what I could do. You know, man, I'm a nightclub guy, you know. So uh, anyway, I went out one night to feed people and just asked innocently where the food comes from. And it was purchased at a very expensive store. And I just said, hey, man, inventory control. I know how much food we throw away. And, dude, I'm in a nightclub where a lot of my friends have gone to catering. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're throwing away mountains of food every night. Um, So that's in the back of my head. But then we pulled up. uh, I've told this story many times in front of the State Department where it was on this rainy night. And here are people standing outside in the rain waiting for this truck to show up with another bunch of volunteers, with another bunch of purchased food. And here we were serving people out in the rain who had to wander off and find some place to dry to maybe eat or sleep before they came back 24 hours later for another trip. So I just proposed innocently, you know, look, man, you can feed more people better food for less money if you get that food donated. But if you bring it to a central kitchen, you can offer men and women a chance to be part of the solution. Come out of the rain, learn a skill, man. You know, and that way you know you can shorten the line by the way you serve it. you can repay metaphorically restaurant tours or people with entry level people. Mm-hmm. It seemed to me a very practical way to from an economic a social <clears throat> and a business way to kind of um put a bunch of things that are perceived as negatives into a kitchen and make it mm-hmm. a positive but it was uh like like oftentimes new ideas or, or were just they were confusing many people hit um Understandably, but I think really uh, negatively, wanted to keep homeless people in a box that said you are incapable of anything. I must come out and feed you every night, and I'm like, no, no, man, that's bondage. You know that you can you can dress it up all you want, but you know you can love somebody to death. You know, don't think that you know just because you're, you're, you have best intentions that you're not having the best results. It's
1: all so, about the actions, what you do to show that you actually do care and give a shit about them.
0: Yeah, well, again, it was like, I look, I've said many times that what I encountered was charity, which was based on the redemption of the giver, not the liberation of yeah. the receiver. And I need redemption, dude. I'm a, I'm a sinner. Man, I was drinking tequila in the wee hours last night. But the point what, what is... What kind? Herodora is my... my well, around the house. My household tequila. <laughs> um, but... Uh, you know, I, I need redemption, but not at the expense of another human. But the point is, if we do it the right way, and both sides are equally redeemed through the interaction, that's the joy of of a kitchen. Right. So anyway, I ended up starting the D.C. Central Kitchen um, almost thirty years ago this month, uh, with that idea of that no one had really done before. You know, I'll collect food, start a cooking school, train homeless people in a very short period of time. You know, literally three months, twelve weeks. And, and did you're you, not a did you left.
2: Sorry, you left the nightclub world to start it, or was this like? A, did it start as a side project while you're still running? It, the nightclubs? It
0: started as a side project because I didn't want to do it, man. I, I ran nightclubs. I spent my entire—I mean, literally—you think about it, like almost 15 years, you know, being around nightclubs. All the very focused on this idea of I want to learn everything I can about the business so that I can open up a really powerful club huh. and continue ideas with the power of music. So. But it became interesting. Um, we opened up on George Bush Sr.'s Inauguration Day with food mm-hmm. donated. Again, man, nightclub 101, showbiz 101. You know? 1988, I, I, right? Yeah. If, uh, uh, January 1989. 20th, yeah, January 20th, 1989 was Inauguration mm-hmm. Day. Um, so it's funny because I incorporated the D.C. kitchen in June of 1988 and then had to raise money, man. And I was going around D.C. saying, you know, again, I'm going to take food that would have been thrown away and use it to train people, our society, under values to produce beautiful, healthy meals and then restaurants. So many people had a variety of concerns. It, you know, Isn't it illegal? You still hear this urban myth that it's, oh, the health department won't allow you to donate food. And it's like, no, there's absolutely no law that says you can't do that. And, and if you will support me and give me some money, I'll go buy a refrigerated truck so that I can create a professional response. So that, in other words, I'm not just driving around in a station wagon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even to this day... 30 years in, I'm a mad, you know, time and temperature is the bad guys in my story. So yeah. refrigeration is a key part of it. But I had to raise, you know, it took me months until I got a check for 25 grand, which was a lot of do re back then, mm-hmm. still is. Mm-hmm. But it allowed me to go get a refrigerated truck, and that was in November, December. And then I, I realized, hey, man, the inauguration's coming. And with a, with a, a young white dude's confidence, um, and that's not to be underestimated, that, that, that sense of I can do anything... I just had the swagger to call up the Republican National Committee and say, dudes, can I speak to the director of catering? And after like 30 calls, suddenly the phone answers and it's like, that's me. And I'm like, you know, my name is Robert Egger. I have a refrigerated truck. I'm starting a program called the DC Kitchen. I'd like to pick up food for the inauguration and start my thing. And, and to their credit, they were immediately like, that's a great idea. We want to donate the food. That would be perfect. Let's do that. Mm-hmm. And so every media, every media outlet in the world was there on opening day. Because who could resist that? But dudes, get this. What I thought was going to be something about homelessness, suddenly on day one, I I tapped into two interesting kind of energies. One was the latent um, uh, frustration Americans had almost universally about food waste. Everyone knew in their heart of hearts how much we wasted as a country and felt negative about it. So there was an enthusiasm for what I had innocently launched. But On the same day I got so many calls from people that exploded my very naive assumptions about hunger. Because I thought, okay, it's homeless people. And suddenly it's like, hey, you know, my my elder parent is at home and can't get a meal. Or my kids in an after school program and I don't get off until six o'clock at night. And suddenly I realized, wow, you know, I can I can create a lot of meals, but hunger is a lot more than just the lack of food. But Back to the, the connection and, and why many people still to this day will say, how'd you go from running nightclubs to running a kitchen? A, it's service, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that's very much at the heart of what I do. And, and I like service. I've, I've never been, you know, many people look at the service industry and I don't know, you know, it just, it doesn't look as appealing, but I think for people who are in it, there's no other world. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, I just, I love service. But um, what's interesting is I realized that the kitchen could be a nightclub and that food had the same power as music. Suddenly, all the things I wanted to achieve with music, innocently, that doorway opened, and here I was at the birth of cable television, the internet, and and kind of the food culture in America. And I had probably one of the easiest pitches you could make when somebody would say, "DC Kitchen, what's that?" It's like, "Well, I take food society throws away, train unemployed men and women for jobs, produce beautiful, healthy meals." Um, and when then we, you know, but it was something everybody could immediately say, "Wow, that's so practical, so cool." Um, That was that doorway. It was that Trojan horse that I could suddenly maybe get people to ponder who's homeless in America and why, you know, what do we waste and why, you know, why do we throw people away? Why do we throw food away? Um, You know, what's the role we can all play in um, not just feeding the poor, but, you know, really working together to alleviate the symptoms of poverty? You know, so like I said, man, ever since then, it's been 30 years now. You know, this is my nightclub. Yeah. Robert,
1: did you have any culinary experience to train people how to prepare food? mm So how did you get together your... So I assume you didn't do this alone. Like, you know, how did you start DC Kitchen? I mean, did you have to get a team together? You know, did you have to go through some to- sort of training, education? I mean, what were the the steps you took to launch DC Kitchen?
0: Well, you know, what's nice about it is it, no one had done it before. So I could make, make it up as I went. You know, there was an element of just... I'll figure it out. Yeah, I, and there was, I think, at the beginning, a sense of there's a, almost like you'll learn by osmosis. You know, whenever you have to produce a large amount of meals day in and day out, you'll learn, right? Yeah. But for those, again, particularly, I think, in the listening audience, who maybe uh, you know, where it's, it's you can't just go out and start a nonprofit. You have to develop a board of directors. You have to get. Oftentimes, you find a a a, a law firm or a, or a lawyer friend that will help you incorporate and develop all your bylaws and that yeah. kind of stuff. Then you have to start raising money, you know, which means for my at that time I didn't know anything about philanthropy. How old were you? Twenty-eight, you know, somewhere in that ballpark. Now I had, you know, again I had all kinds of business acumen at the time, but I had never done charitable work. Yeah, you know, right. So I had to figure out, okay, what's the business model? Um, I have to develop a board of directors to, you know, basically, you know, it's part of the the, the bag of running a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Find the money and then figure out where am I going to get a kitchen? Where am I going to do this? You know, how am I gonna, It's like. And it's funny because it, it, was, it was very organic, but I had to find, okay, um, as, soon as, uh, as soon as we opened with that media, a bunch of restaurants called up, as I knew would happen. And I already signed up a bunch to contribute food, but suddenly I'm driving a truck. It was me. It was just me in a truck. And I was young at the time, so I could literally, and I did this, dudes, for probably five years. I made my bones waking up at 2 in the morning when my pager went off. And some caterer was calling up saying, hey, dude, we've got like eight legs of lamb left over here at this big event. Can you come get it? And that was my job. And I had the stamina to not only go out, pick it up, take it back to the kitchen, go home, go to sleep, wake up a couple of hours later and go back um, to a place where then I would have to figure out where am I going to deliver it while I'm trying to figure out where I'm going to open a kitchen. I ended up partnering with a nonprofit organization that had a kitchen. So I renovated that. And mm-hmm. again, me and friends went there late at night. Um, it's funny, man, I haven't done this in a while. Remember that era and the joy of friends. You know, when everybody's came over, it's like paintbrushes and we're scouring this old kitchen. And everyone's really excited. And then I ended up meeting a dude who was really helpful um, and Chef Rahim. And um, he, had, he had been an addict and, and, and been in prison. And he was a chef and he had trained, he had uh, become a social worker Mm -hmm. and I met him and it's like, dude, you're a chef, you're a social worker, you're a former addict. Let's do this together. (laughs) Um, The wild part is he was Muslim and wasn't interested in pig in his kitchen, but it was, there were small compromises made, but it it, it grew from me in a truck to me in a kitchen to me and, and, you know, chef Rahim (laughs) together. And then it just people, person by person, inch by inch, step by step, we just started growing it.
1: Was Chef Andres, Jose Andres, involved at the time as well with DC Kitchen?
0: Interesting enough, Jose came in probably, uh, let, let's say, maybe five years, six years in. Um, Rob Wilder, who was a restaurant tour in DC, uh, he and another friend, Roberto Alvarez, wanted to open up a tapas mm-hmm. restaurant. And they were looking for a chef. And mm-hmm. they, they, they said, look, man, we found this young Spanish dude. He's coming down. Um, we'd like to get him involved in your kitchen. And mm-hmm. I'm like, cool, man. Because, you know, we... Early on, I was bringing chefs in to help train because I knew that, like, everyone everyone felt bad for people who are homeless. But that didn't mean everybody was willing to hire someone who was homeless. And here I was, in effect, creating a school specifically for the homeless. So when anybody went out and said, I've been to the D.C. kitchen, you know, no matter what they look like, the average person would say, oh, wow, dude, this guy was obviously an Mm -hmm. addict out of Mm -hmm. prison or whatever. So I started bringing in chefs to help teach. With the idea that while they were there, they would see people who were really into it, and they would kind of that would maybe help melt some reservations they might have. But that opened a lot of doors, right? So Jose was just another chef who wanted to come down and help, which was really cool and welcome. But we, man, we just hit it off like peas and carrots, Mm -hmm. and and became fast friends, and we have been ever since. To the point where not only did he become the, the board chair of DC Kitchen. And together we built this kind of uh, capital food fight into what is a very significant annual event still in DC that generates you know seven hundred thousand every year for DC Kitchen. Um, but then he came in one day and said, "Let's let's go global, man. Let's start the World Central Kitchen." And I'm like, you know, okay, dude, let's do it. So mm-hmm. I joined his board, and we started opening up. Um, it was a combination of clean cook stove getting women who primarily had to cook with coal or propane or whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sorry, wood And what Um, country was this in? It was in the United States, but we originally started working again all over, uh, in Haiti in particular, right after Mm -hmm. some of the earlier hurricanes and then Dominican Republic, um, Zambia, um, all over these projects to open either cooking schools or, or organizations in which there was a business attached, right? Mm Because this idea is the economic power of food. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I decided that it was time for me to move on from DC Kitchen, that you know it it had been a great run, but I did not want to spend this next phase of my life. I was in my early 50s and thought, look, dude, if I'm going to make a move, it's time to move now. And two things had really been on my mind. One was, and again, I think anybody who does business, you're always kind of a smart business person who's always got... One eye on the day-to-day, another eye on what's coming around the corner. How can I be an early adapter for what's coming next? Mm -hmm. And I became fixated on supply and demand in my business. So um, I watched and, and at times tried to alert colleagues in the hunger world that all the food that's donated, and it's a huge amount, nonetheless, it represents lost profit. Having come from that world of business... I kept trying to alert colleagues. It's like, look, dudes, this is going to go away. You don't get it. Profit margins, this is not the 1980s or 90s anymore. This is a very different era. And you're seeing an explosion of culinary schools, which means uh, an avalanche of chefs coming out every year with better inventory controls. Dudes, they're going to cut out the supply of food. What's next? And that's what really got me focused on fruits and vegetables. And not only fruits and vegetables, but the duality of either getting them donated, but also buying at a reduced cost, which allowed us to open up social enterprise businesses, which allowed us to generate our own revenue, but also employ men and women who might, even even through their best efforts, um, because of either age or criminal background, it was just too hard for them to get a gig. Mm -hmm. We started doing this, and it really went to another level when um, the COO uh, of the DC Kitchen at the time and the current CEO, Mike Curtin really started saying, let's go out to the farmers in Virginia and buy food. And then the Obamas came in and wanted to do school food. And we jumped into that wedge very deftly mm-hmm. to, again, be part of helping America see the, the viability of buying local and producing scratch-cooked meals for school kids, right, which a lot of people wanted to do it. We just added the element of let's employ people yeah. who might be have spent their youth tearing the city apart And now they have an opportunity to be part of putting it back together while they're getting a wage, right? So I came out to L.A. because fruits and vegetables, uh, as I suggested, are really the long-term viable supply of food. But I also became really, um, and it's not a popular issue, but I became fixated on the issue of seniors and Mm -hmm. poverty. Mm -hmm. And in 2002, I did a gig speaking at Meals on Wheels annual conference. And uh, the, the CEO at the time, Eden Borden, said... You know, we got a waiting list in half of American cities, and that was like a two by four. It was like, wait, 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 time out. 80 million baby boomers are coming, and you've got a waiting list already. And the supply of food that charity relies upon to feed people is decreasing. That's a real problem in the future. What are we going to do? So that began this new march of mine to say, again, how do you feed more people a healthier meal for less money? Um, And that's what brought me to L.A., which is, you know, where we sit.
1: You know, I'm glad you brought that up, but I also want to talk about you know the transition from DC to LA. Um, you know, well, first of all, I want to kind of ask: Did you have a family at this time? And you know, uh, you know, what was or did, how what was your personal life like?
0: Well, you know, I've always been really lucky, man. I, I married, uh, uh, even though we did not go to school together. I've always referred to her as the coolest chick in high school. You mm-hmm. know, I just married. Uh, we we met when we were very young got married when we were 24, 25, and we just had our 34th wedding anniversary. Congratulations. So it's, yeah. No, man, I'm, I'm really happy. We have a beautiful daughter who was raised, interesting enough, at the D.C. kitchen. Um, I trudged around in a backpack uh, picking up food. Um, but, uh, you know, it was a time in my life where, again, daughter was off at college, wife and I doing really well, but saying to ourselves, you know, look, we got a choice. We can either coast um, or, you know, do something badass and new. Um, let's let's cash our chips in, man, and, and go, let's let's do something bold. So, you know, a friend of mine out in L.A. reached out to talk about food hubs, and I said, you know, look, actually, I know L.A. really well, and what you really need is a processing kitchen where you can really get a ton of this fruits and vegetables but stabilize it. Um, you know, anytime you pick something or pluck something, it starts to go bad. So time, again, time and temperature are the enemy. So this idea of having a kitchen where you could chop, dice, puree, juice, zest, bake with the pulp, you know, compost, just radical no waste while you squeezed every ounce of opportunity out of what you get. So the – but, you know, I got a million bucks out of great old friends at the AARP Foundation. Mm-hmm. You know, they were really down with this idea, and I think they, they instinctively knew that there was a crisis afoot and that their traditional charitable responses weren't really adjusting. Um, so, for example, in my business – the average way food is distributed to people in need in America is through pantries and food banks. Pantries and food banks were designed in the 1960s. And while many have evolved, um, the reality of the, the face of hunger currently is most likely a single person, oftentimes a woman, working one or two jobs and taking care of kids or an older person. So time and physical ability are the barriers, yet we still say come down to the pantry, oftentimes Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, and he will give you a box of things that may or may not be culturally relevant. It may involve uh, preparation time that you Mm -hmm. don't have or may be physically difficult for you to lug home. There's a lot of variables here. So my thing is constantly, constantly self-evaluating our own organization but looking at what are the barriers to helping more people. Um, and how do we overcome them? so you know again i, I there 's an interesting puzzle we 're in the middle of now, which is we know um, that we have to feed a lot of older people coming down the road. We know sadly um, and it 's ignored everywhere that um, a a huge number of baby boomers will not have enough money in the bank for the years science is going to give them Why is that um, well a it's it 's a sad. Um, belief that somehow everything will be okay in America, that, that we're a country in which elders don't go hungry. And, and the post-World War II economy, in, in, it put America at the very top of the global heap for decades. Um, but what you had is a society in which we've been told uh, relentlessly, buy, consume, you are what you own. Don't worry about tomorrow, you deserve it. And so what you've got is, of all workers now in America between 45 and 60, all workers, half don't have 10 grand set aside. So whether that's a rainy day fund, retirement, half of all workers don't have 10 grand in the bank. Uh, and that, to me, you can see what's coming. You know, you can see it. And it's sad because very few people want to deal with it, talk about it, let alone plan for it. So to a certain extent, there is a, a little bit of an isolation at the L.A. Kitchen because we're kind of an outlier. You know, There's very few people... Um, and don't get me wrong, there's, there's millions of people around the country who are working to try and mm-hmm. alleviate the, the suffering that older people oftentimes face, and particularly isolation. But I think the epic kind of reality of A, you can't afford to feed this many people meat every day, period, flat out, period. It isn't, we can talk about sustainability, we can talk about health all day long or the environment, but dude, economics 101, it's just too expensive. So that means you not only have to develop an entirely new nutritional approach to senior meals. But you have to sell it. You have to get a generation of people who have been raised eating, you know, bacon, bologna, and pork chops every day yeah. um, to stop and, and, and adjust. Um, so, and, and then at the same time, you have to do this in a context in which very few funders or very few city governments recognize the issue or the importance of keeping the economic essential of keeping an older generation living independently and staying productive as long as possible. So there is an element of Paul Revere to the work I'm doing now, um, which is you know a the day to day joyful work of trying to explore you know what kind of food, where do you serve it, what happens before, during, after? How do you how do you really um, use food to bring older people out? How do you get them to engage? How do you get them to, to produce, again, through volunteerism, stay healthy and fit, you know, feel engaged and needed? Yeah. So there's all that. But at the same time, how do you get the larger society to see um, the epic folly of not addressing this issue? So, I, I, again, it's it's probably the most challenging thing I've ever done. Um, to be honest with you, dude, going back to moving, um, the romance of saying, baby, let's pack it all up and go to L.A. and and... There has been epic joy to this transition for my wife and I, but arriving here and having to build you know, what in effect is a 20,000 square foot processing kitchen inside of the biggest kitchen incubator space in America yeah. um, and, and to build something from scratch at age 55 where I didn't have as a young man that stamina. To stay up till two in the morning and then go to work the next day. I mean, don't get me wrong, man. I I, I work like a mofo, but um, the reality- and you have more energy than you know most young people that I know these days. <laughs> yeah, I, I appreciate that very yeah. much, man. I, I work hard to be, um, you know, to be spiritually fit. Let's mm-hmm. put it that way. But uh, it really was, man. It has been exhausting, um, and there were some real serious near misses. Now, when I came out here, my hope was similar to the work we had done in Washington, D.C. with the schools mm-hmm. that I could come here to the Department of Aging and every town's got some group yeah. um, that I could really do business with them and that we could, in effect, partner to really experiment so that L.A. could be at the very forefront, that people could come from around the world to say, wow, look at what LA's doing. And I chose L.A. because obviously a proximity to the Central Valley and amazing food, but and it's one of the largest concentration of older people, mm-hmm. but... It's predictably going to be one of the early onset places where older people will be open to vegetarian. uh, Southern California has this lifestyle, so you can see it's going to happen here. I was also intrigued because L.A. is a town where, for the first time in the history of this town, there are so many content producers. And and particularly now that Netflix has really opened the game in a big way— that you're going to have interesting new allies in a generation of older actors who will be able to get work in their old age without necessarily having to change themselves physically to keep the gig. And these are going to be natural allies who will say, you might recognize me for my long career in entertainment, and I'm still working, thank goodness, but it's my diet that helps me maintain my energy and my fitness and my beauty. So these are all things that I figured would be powerful allies in emanating this idea of, better food for older people.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but I ran into a, a real wall, and it's not good, bad, right, wrong. Sadly, it's oftentimes the kind of calcification of, of, of big groups. And I found here, sadly, in the Department of Aging, a, a, a real genuine reluctance to experimentation with what a meal could look like. So for example, the, what I found is there's great barriers. A, the four compartment plate is a massive barrier, you know, whether it's no matter where you go in an institutional setting, there's always that preformed plastic plate that oftentimes says, here's where the piece of meat goes. And that's your entree. And so I came out here with friends who were founders of tender greens, sweet greens, Jose, multiple chefs. We
1: actually interviewed, uh, I don't know if you know, Eric Oberholzer.
0: Yeah. 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 Totally. Yeah, he Eric would, was on our founding board. Yeah. He was our second guest for this podcast. So oh, right yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, he's a great guy. But again, you know, look at what they were doing with the idea of blended meals, the mm-hmm. idea of here's mm-hmm. a beautiful salad bowl and everything you mm-hmm. need is in here. Mm-hmm. Right. I wanted to be able to do something mm-hmm. like that for seniors, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But what you found is a world in which, you know, nutritionists will say or dietitians who are not keeping up with the larger world, um, food can't touch, Yeah, you know. This is where the protein goes, and and protein equals meat. Period. So even mm. something like Meatless Monday was a no go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and frankly, I had somebody look at me in the eye and say, "Look, man, we ran um, Jamie Oliver out of L.A., and we're going to do the same to you." Um, and to me, it's like, "Oh well, fuck that, man. We're well, now game mm. on, game <laughs> on. Let's you know, let's do this yeah. because dude, time's on my side." Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, a- again, I understand how people can can. Seemingly insulate themselves from change, but what they don't get and what I want to foment is a generation of older people Who will take a picture of their meal and put it on Twitter and say man these people are trying to kill me I want healthier food yeah. um, you know uh, Similarly as I think of more allies that can help you know wrestle away not only from you know recalcitrant Department of aging But also help seniors overcome their fear so for example the Chargers the galaxy Football teams, uh, basketball teams, hockey teams, they all have vegetarians and vegans now. Mm -hmm. So Eric is another example. Eric Mm -hmm. now has expanded the Tender Greens empire to also include nutrition consulting for professional athletes. Yeah,
1: I think he said he's doing the Chargers, Dodgers. Right. uh, Kings. Yeah, the Kings.
0: So what's wild, man, is his job is to help that 23-year-old kid, that 320, 6'5 dude who's, you know, packed on weight with Kraft macaroni and cheese and Whoppers evolve to a healthier version of craft macaroni and cheese or whopper. So again it's it's what I love is is you meet people where they're at and you begin a, a nutritional journey respectfully together. So Eric and others again have been very helpful because you have now professional athletes that will help sell mm-hmm. your ideas. Mm-hmm.
2: So you launched LA Kitchen in 2013. You, you, know, you run several programs through here, Impact LA, Empower LA, Strong Food. I know about a decade before that, you actually wrote a book. Is that right? Yeah. Why did you write a book? How did that come about?
0: Well, uh, you know, man, I, I could be, um, and I still can be really self-righteous about it. And I, I, I try to be honest about that. A, a, I won't say a failing, but there's an urgency that I don't, sometimes don't feel that the nonprofit sector gets we've become complacent with this sense of, well, we'll just do what we've always done. We'll feed the poor with leftover food. And it's like, dude, you will not. That's going to go away. You have to think. And so what I was trying to do was um, alert the sector to perceive uh, visible changes that were afoot, but also challenge them to own our own power. I mean, you know, there are 1.4 million nonprofits. We have... We have literally, and this is universities, hospitals, LA kitchens, but we have collectively three trillion in assets, three hundred billion in annual revenue in donations, yep. um, seventy million volunteers. Yet we seem to be hesitant to do anything more than traditional charity with those assets. And my question becomes: Look, if I can take food that was society thrown away, people society undervalued, kitchens that were underutilized, volunteers to make who just wanted to make something happen, if I can take all those things, and look yeah. at LA kitchen. Everything we use here is perceived as part of the problem. And that was the joy of arriving in L.A. I, I came in saying, hey, man, all the things you think are messed up, you know, felons, foster care, food waste, old people, I don't see them. Uh, I see them as assets. You know, you're looking at it the wrong way. Here's a way in which those negatives can now be part of a powerful new solution. So I would only ask the same of the larger charitable sector. You know, it's like, dudes, if we can do all this with stuff that was being thrown away, what can we do with $300 billion in a reverie, and the energy and idealism of, of of whether it's an older generation who have the deepest well of life experience in the history of the world or a younger generation raised doing service who are hell bent on social enterprise and, and really almost taking capitalism apart and putting it back mm-hmm. together.
1: And I think that specifically this younger millennial generation sees that i mean like i've been you know a volunteer here at la kitchen several times with different groups that i'm a part of and every time we have to turn away people because we're just always at max capacity because they love being here and not because they're chopping up fruits and vegetables they see the bigger picture right. you know when i was working at mayor garcetti's office of reentry, you know working with the formerly incarcerated one thing that i learned was that you know there's an abundance overabundance of food you know on skid row and that you know what and, and we're just making it a bigger problem by making more comfortable streets, as opposed to focus on taking these people off of the streets, providing them housing, providing them jobs. And that really got me thinking. And that's why, you know, I joined a lot of these different groups that focus on, you know, homelessness or reentry, or just kind of these social issues that impact LA specifically. Um, and I think that you guys are obviously doing that, you know, so well, but I'm curious, what, I mean, how do you keep educating yourself? How do you stay up on the trends? How do you foresee these things, you know, it's, it's incredible the
0: knowledge you have, but it's also incredible that you do something about it almost immediately. I, I appreciate that, dude. I work hard at it. Now, I'm real lucky, and, I, and I, I've alluded to it earlier, but I don't want to underemphasize, you know, I'm a white dude in America. So I had, I had opportunities that many others wouldn't get. Now, I use those opportunities right. very deliberately, but the rarest gift that anybody in my position can have is time to think. You know, most people, man, it's head down, keep the payroll and the lights on. So I've had the rare, I I have room to breathe. And not only that, but I've had, I've helped about 60 kitchens open around America. And we've opened another thing I started called Campus Kitchens, which Mm -hmm. are about on set. So I've traveled extensively, which has given me an incredible opportunity to see other ideas. So um, I've tried to use those very deliberately. Now, it, it is, I find it challenging. I mean, I like Really like this idea of uh, probability, what's coming next. You know, women outlive men, women outnumber men. Hey, the next Me Too movement is going to be ageism in America. So, those are the kind of things I like playing with. But the hard part is it doesn't mean everybody wants to see the same thing you do. Um, You know, most people don't want to see the future. Most people would rather wait for it to come to them. And my Mm -hmm. thing is, no, dude, march out to meet it. You know, why wait for bad shit to happen when you can potentially, and the odds are against you, but what do you got to lose? You know, you only got one life, man. Rock, go for it, you know? So it it both is exciting and exhilarating for our team here, I think, to be, for example, even if it's something like um in the middle of everything, we had the the Sepulveda Pass fire that rapidly moved into Ventura County. Mm-hmm. And teamed up with Jose and literally we, let's just start cranking out meals. And we ended up doing like 35,000 meals along with a whole bunch of chefs and great people up in Ventura Mm -hmm. who really, you know, again, really kind of rallied to take care of their own. But it's that, it's that sense that I think our team and I love of we're in it, man. You know, we're in it to win it. We're not, we're not dicking around. We're, we're purposely coming in every day to do something bold and we push each other. You know, we have a... And you may even see, you know, when you come through, there's a volunteer bill of rights. And part of that is you yeah, have the right yeah. to know what impact your work made. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I personally wish every volunteer, every time they went into a nonprofit, said, okay, cool, man, I'm here and I'm ready to rock. But tell me before we start, how is what I do today going to fundamentally change tomorrow? You yeah. And you guys do that. You bet. You bet. I mean, uh, to me, that, you know, when you think about how do you change the world, you know, it's that idea of one idea at a time. But if you can say to every volunteer who comes through here, You have the right to talk to anybody in this organization. You have the right to rate your experience. You have the right to know what impact you made. You have the right to our financial information. That means that they might go out and ask other groups that same thing. And I think that would drive, when I watched the restaurant industry go from the only great restaurants in America were the French restaurants. I mean, those were in the 1960s and 70s, boom, there was no debate. French food was the zenith. And thirty years later, look at the explosion. And a lot of that was driven by educated consumers, people who started to ask questions, people who really wanted to wear Just my food Transparency. T- totally. Yeah. So what I saw revolutionize the food world and open it up to so many new people, I'd like to see the same thing happen in the charitable world. So whether it's through the book I wrote long, dude, it's like fifteen years ago at this point. <laughs> Um, but it's funny because somebody actually brought it the other day and had just read it and asked me to sign it, which was really, I mean, it's pretty cool, man. I, uh, yeah. I must admit, but its I'm proud of it, but I've continued to constantly evolve. So I just did, like, for example, three speeches in San Francisco, LA, and I was going to say, I know Dallas. you do a lot
2: of speaking engagements. I do. Um,
0: yeah. Because this one was specifically on this idea of what are some of the real serious trends that the sector needs to see collectively that is going to really change our world and how do we get out in front of it? So- there's an element. I always say I try and divide my time as a CEO 49-51. 49% is here. You know How can I make LA Kitchen, along with all the amazing people who work here, really one of the baddest social enterprises anybody's ever seen? But 51% is saying, look, man, at the end of the day, I can dress this shit up all kinds of ways, but I'm still serving working people, leftover food. Yeah. And that's, that's never going to be right. So what must come next, and how can I be part of that?
2: As a, as a nonprofit leader... What advice would you give to, to younger folks who see a need um, for a nonprofit, but maybe you're looking at it like, oh, maybe I'm not experienced enough, or maybe I'm not at a place in my life where I could just like only start a nonprofit and how am I gonna support myself, et cetera, et cetera. What are your thoughts on that? What would you what would you tell them?
0: Well, you know, A, the future of the world is not more nonprofits. And the future is not nonprofits acting like business, even though there is a case to be made for efficiencies my opinion, the the future of the world is business that behaves like nonprofits. You know, it's the idea of a social business that needs to make profit, but that, that we start to move away from the kind of Milton Friedman school of economics that say, your number one job as a business owner is to make money for your investors. You know, I think that we need, in effect, kind of a consumer rebellion in which people say, look, if you choose to make billions of dollars, but you're, in effect, shutting down businesses all over America so you can get wealthy. That's your prerogative as an American. God bless America. Yay. Mm. I don't, I'm not obligated as a consumer to help you. And I think that once consumers, and this was what made, if I can go a little bit philosophical here, this is what made Mahatma Gandhi and uh, Dr. King and Cesar Chavez so powerful is, you know, Gandhi said, if we don't buy salt from the British, you know, and it was interesting, Indians had to buy imported salt. If we don't buy it that'll have an economic impact, and they'll have to deal with us. If, if 350 million Indians don't cooperate, things will shut down. Dr. King said, man, don't ride the buses in Montgomery. It'll cost a dime to ride a bus. You know, Cesar Chavez says don't buy table grapes. So I'm fascinated because all three of those men used the boycott, which is, in effect, saying if poor people don't participate, the illusion of power is revealed, and suddenly... You have an enlightened consumer who realizes, wow, the way I spend my money is the difference between the need for charity and a different world. Social enterprise to me, which is what we do a lot of, you know, how do we create jobs for men and women, buy food, and then create products that we can sell, which underwrite the cost of our of our program, which only helps more people not end up in the street or not end up back in prison. Um, how can we, through those kind of sales, help a larger society realize that the greatest volunteer act we do every day is consume, buy. You know, literally, shopping is, you know, no one says you have to buy things anywhere. You can go wherever you want. So imagine, for example, if the nonprofits of America put together a little seal and said, hey man, thanks for volunteering, but when you leave here, look for this seal that the United Nonprofits of, of California, LA, every time you shop at these stores, you diminish the need for us. You know, you want to help hunger go away? Spend your money differently, and here's the stores that pay a good wage, reinvest profit, give people the day off to vote, provide childcare, whatever. We could drive consumption to diminish charity much faster than we can um, meet the need with checks at the end of the year. So to me, that's probably one of the great opportunities for a younger generation that won't have the extra money that my generation did. You know, as the global economy shifts, that era of extra in which food – money, time, buildings, clothes, all the things that that supply the nonprofit sector, which is the extra of America, a lot of that's going away. And so for a younger generation, I think it's going to be, and and to your original point, man, and I'm sorry for the wander, um, but I'd say to a younger person, you know, go start a business and run your business like you care about the place you live. You know, make the way you treat your employees or your customers or the earth or whatever, make that your philanthropy. Um, you don't have to quit your job, man, and put on, you know, kind of a a hair suit and, you know, walk around. There's an old saying, man, come down off the cross, we need the wood. You know, I'm intrigued by that idea of, you know, the relentless incrementalism of a a life well lived. That if you're just a little bit kinder, I mean, it sounds hokey, but honestly, I tell young people all the time, it's like, A, first and foremost, define for yourself what is success and happiness for you. Society will say you need to buy more stuff. You know, my generation, probably one of the 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 greatest failures I've ever seen has been my generation's version of success. You know, we almost tank the global economy. So don't go down that same journey. Define for yourself, but never underestimate the, 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 as Robert Kennedy said, you know, every time somebody stands up and acts out against injustice, they send forth a small ripple. And from a million different sources, those ripples can create currents that can wash down. Be part, be a ripple maker, you know, on a daily basis, just through decent acts to another human being, um, you know, come down to places like the LA Kitchen. But come down both with a, a, an open heart, but also an open mind. And, and look, as I did as a volunteer, is there something that would make us nec- less necessary, more efficient, more just, um, and offer those ideas up? And at the organization, but, you know, you don't, don't feel like you really have to go out and start something brand new.
1: And Robert, you know what I love is every time I come here, you know, whether it's with you know, people that I know or others, it just seems like it doesn't matter who we are as individuals, because we get that mission, we understand that when we come here, we are doing X, because this is the result, Y is the result. Um, and it's just, it's this sense of community that you built, you know, and that you continue to build. And, you know, I think that is what keeps at least my optimism alive. I think it is what keeps, you know, folks around the country optimistic about the future of, you know, America and, you know, the the younger generation really kind of stepping in. And I love how you talked about that shift between, you know, the baby boomer generation and the millennials and the generation after us as well. Um, Because it is an interesting time, you know, it's a learning time where we don't really know what's going on. A lot of people, you know, in our age group, and even older, younger, they're really uncertain about what they are going to do. And I think a lot of it is because of a lack of information. They just don't know. A lot of, you know, educational institutions have not yet, you know, come up to date with, you know, what's going on in the world. Um, and, you know, whether it's business school or, I mean, I went to law school, it's very archaic still, you know, it's not practical. And I think what you're doing here and the work that nonprofits like LA Kitchen do is they create this sense of pragmatism that doesn't exist in the educational institutions or just even in the working world sometimes. So, you know, and, and to
2: that point, I think I saw on your LinkedIn um, under education, it just says life and, and I loved it. I <laughs> well, mean, yeah, I, man, I didn't. I mean, again, I
0: barely graduated high school, dude. but seriously, I mean, no, life, life is, yeah, it the, is. The, big, the biggest educator. But, you know, dude, I'll tell you, growing up in the 70s, 60s, 70s and seeing Woodstock, seeing the concert for Bangladesh, mm-hmm. sure, there was music. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what I saw more, what intrigued me more, is people's deeper hunger for community. That that yeah. there was a tribalism, mm-hmm. and to me, that's what interests me the most. Is is food to me is a is a great doorway. Um, it's there's a, there's a saying I love talking about is that for so much of us in this business, we're focused on agriculture. You know, everything you hear is food, 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 mm-hmm. and it's like, dude, it's agriculture. You know, that's what interests me. It's what's the role that for 12,000 years people shared over a simple meal or a harvest. And it it sounds archaic and maybe even a little I need, but what what people don't get is there is this deeper hunger in America. People are desperate. Obama touched it. President Obama, I should Mm -hmm. say, touched it. But you, you can see there's this insane energy right below the surface. And once you know it's there, it's like gold. I mean, you know it's there. You're just trying to figure out how to mine it. But dudes... To me, this is the power of food, is it brings people from a million walks of life into a place where they're, they're open, they're ready to try something new. So, you know, for an example, one of the things I'm really interested in is you go to the average big food conference and people will say, man, we've got to take back the food system and, you know, you know, like, 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 retweet, retweet. But it's like, dudes, there's only one way, and that's creating an intergenerational political alliance. Hmm. And, you know, right now you're seeing huge efforts to keep generations divided and fighting, literally i mean every day there's a new article you know 20 things that millennials hate about boomers and 30 things we <laughs> hate right back at you mm-hmm. and i think that's purposeful man they i mean there's a there's yeah. an effort and i'm like no dudes how we got to get generations together and boom what could you possibly get that would get older and younger potentially to agree food policy in america so it's another example of the power of food yeah. is that idea of wow what what would it be like to create you know to basically get old together old and young together and say hey look you know We can probably approach this and put both either a baby boomers latent desire to many of them want to return to the 60s. And it's like, dude, there's no going back. But you can reclaim that set that energy and that sense of urgency and and commitment to something in your later ages. And for a younger generation, I've said so many times, it's like, dudes, why occupy the street? Take over the town. There's 100 million of you. Mm -hmm. Dudes register to vote. But that idea of aligning people together and finding an intergenerational pact, dude, that's, that's something I really want to explore. Mm-hmm.
1: And you talked about early on about, you know, the future, what is the future, you know, f- like for you? I know we talked about aging and, you know, formerly incarcerated folks and, um, you know, a bunch of other, you know, social issues that concepts like Ellie Kitchen are helping solve, but what is the future, you know, like for you personally? I mean, I, I don't see you stopping working anytime soon because you have more energy than me. Um, and that's, that's something, cause I'm just, I just talk and, you know, just do stuff all day, but you know, what do you want to do? You know, and, and also kind of to that question and something that Pat and I were really pondering, you know, when we heard about Anthony's death was, you know, what, how do you define happiness and success? You know, cause you know, Pat texted me yesterday and he's like,
2: I don't get it, man. He's like, this guy traveled the world, you know, this concept of the- like self-actualization and yeah. enlightenment. Right. And yeah. you would think like, you know, Tony, had that, like he traveled the world, he met different cultures, he was immersed in those cultures, and he that that gives you a sense of joy, right, mm-hmm. and and almost belonging, but you, you know deep down you just don't know. But uh, what what do you, what are your thoughts on that? And and well, dude, you know success? what's funny
0: is is I think a lot, man. I'll, I'm going to be sixty this month, you know, and that's a real. Trip. You don't look it, by oh, but oh well, dude, yeah. you're kind, yeah, but uh, but uh, you know there is a sense of a. Don't fall into the trap of. I'm getting old. It's like, you know, that's that, you know, don't fall into that trap. And it's hard because there are physical yeah, yeah, yeah. things that start to shift, man. It's just the reality of it. You can feel it, you know? <laughs> um, but at the same time, you know, I must admit, man, one of the things that I'm, I'm so honored. It's like you all come in, you know, two young guys coming and thinking I'm relevant, you know, to be to be relevant and to feel like you're still contributing. Mm-hmm. This is what people want. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's, you know, literally people asking your opinion or people asking you to come in and and work next to them, or be part of something. Being relevant is is very important to me, and I, that's. I think one of the most exciting things is on an annual basis. There's a lot of organizations that are kind enough to invite me to come and speak to younger social entrepreneurs, and you know, dude, it it means a lot to be um, considered still relevant, and that your ideas are still inspiring to a younger generation. That I'm overwhelmed by the work they do. I mean, I look at a younger generation of people and I'm just so overwhelmed by their ingenuity and the dynamic things that are going on in tech and just, it's a, it's, it is a strange time.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, you know, um, one of the things that I'm, I must admit I'm, I'm sidetracking a little bit, but just to get this in is man, I, i just fascinated by AI, artificial intelligence yeah. and, and, and what happens when literally, uh, instead of the traditional method of growing food, which is like big fields with water yep. pickers, Planes going over with pesticides. What happens when you have little drones driving along? I mean, you know these Which they th- already do they have like drones flying over
1: like there's actually a USC professor that I, I that I know that developed this technology where the drones they like partner up they team up together totally. and they go they fly over and they you know, the pesticide stuff and what all the needs water, and, water when yep. it needs water, yep. what needs everything yeah. is mean,
0: insane. So what does that do for employment? I mean, you know, look at mm-hmm. right now for older people. You know, it might yeah. be, hey, man, I'm retired. I don't have a lot of money, but I got my I got my Social Security, but I drive Uber. And it's like, okay, man, I love what I do. I see people. I get to drive around the city. Yeah. Suddenly, boom, driverless cars come. What happens to all those people? You know, so there is an element of great concern, you mm-hmm. know, um, because humans need to be engaged. You know, th- there's this, it's funny mm-hmm. when you go back in time to, the 1940s when after World War II for the first time in the history of the planet. An army came home and didn't go back to the farm. That had never, ever happened. And we forget that that was wrapped up in in, in a joyful, you know, yelp of like free at last. I mean, for a lot of those men and women, it was like, thank you, I don't have to go back to that fucking farm, you know? And we forget that all, so much of our advancements are, are wrapped around the idea of, of this this 12,000 years people thought if I only had time... To paint. If I only had time to love my spouse, take a walk, see the world as it is, and we think we've romanticized that idea. Yet I think there's an there's an element we all have that we we need to do something. You know, so to me, this is the most powerful aspect of the work I do. Is it's not chopping vegetables all day. It's finding ways to get people to come together around the process of preparing <coughs> meals. Mm-hmm. So whether and my favorite thing when you go out there is when somebody who might have spent 20, 30 years away in prison. Is suddenly sitting around a table, giving them, you know, showing them how to hold a knife, how to cut this yeah. up, talking, laughing, mm-hmm. and that the whole table is looking to that person for what do I do next. And I love watching that moment in which both sides kind of drop their their guard a little bit and allow. You it know, ends the stigma. It does.
1: It does because it humanizes them. You know, okay. that's the problem with media. Is at least my problem with media is they. But specifically about, you know, formerly incarcerated prisoners is every time that you see them, they're behind bars or they're in their orange, you know, attire in, you know, in court or in jail. That's the image that you've portrayed. But then when you see them in a chef's kind of jacket with a knife chopping vegetables, you're like, what? That's
0: the same person, you know? So that's the problem is the imagery that we've put out there. Right. And again, that's what we try to do is counter that with another image. Exactly. And, you know, I always say, man, I'm in the bravery business. Mm-hmm. So whether it's helping somebody be brave enough to see themselves as something other than a former felon, mm-hmm. a returning citizen, or whether it's someone who thinks if you're in prison in America, you must have done something wrong. They don't—the cops don't arrest you unless you've done something exactly. wrong. To maybe reimagine that or rethink their ideas. So, again, bravery— I would say, this is the job, is is everyone comes here to programs like LA Kitchen. They're, they're looking for something. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, it's that that excuse, that, that doorway to um, seeing something besides themselves, See, having the bravery to listen, to engage, to try something different. I mean, today, I, I love our team here, because they're always trying to come up with ingenious ways. Now, we do a lot of events that celebrate the diversity of LA, so if you come, for example to most volunteer calendars put out by most nonprofits, the kind of the big annual celebratory days are nine times out of ten Judeo-Christian Western holidays. So what we did is looked at the whole thing and said, I want to know every faith Christian's holy days. I want to know every Independence Day, every Liberator's birthday. How many different ways can we say at LA Kitchen we respect, honor, and celebrate yeah. your days, your people? Mm-hmm. Now, um, so today, for example, they're doing volunteer, and now they're about to do a yoga shift. And is the first. We've never done this yeah, one. Yeah. Um, but it's a fascinating connection. And again, man, today we had like 40 people roll in with their yoga mats. They're going to spend two or three hours chopping up and then they'll kind of just do a wind down. Yeah. Um, but these are the kind of things that I'm experimenting with, you know, or we're experimenting with. It's like, uh, what is the super, what is does uh, the senior center of the future look like? You know, what goes on before the meal, after the meal? You know, can we take volunteer experiences to the senior center? You know, we just got. Um, after the work we did with Jose and uh, the Chefs for California in Ventura, Albertsons did one of those roundups at the cash register and ended up raising an insane amount of money. And they donated uh, you know, a, a pretty big hunk to for the LA Kitchen to buy a mobile vehicle so that we have the ability, either through the day-to-day emergencies of building fires or whatnot, mm-hmm. but also bigger things to be prepared. But that idea of how can we use that thing, man, and go out, uh, you know, go out onto the streets where seniors come and instead of saying, come down to this adult daycare center, it's like, man, meet us in the park. Man, we're gonna have a nutritional bingo thing in the afternoon, you know, we're gonna have a volunteer experience. You can chop vegetables up here on the picnic tables, we'll have a meal together, maybe we'll take the stuff we chopped together down to the after school mm-hmm. program and hand it out after school. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I'm just trying to think of Anything you can do. In mm-hmm. fact, dudes, any of your listeners got an idea, man. I'm just R. Egger at LaKitchen.org, man. Yeah. I'm always open and ready to. Yeah, roll we'll over. share with them. Yeah, and it.
1: and Rob, I want to end with you know this question or I guess statement or you know whatever you want to call it. But you know throughout this you know three four decades of you know being involved with you know DC Kitchen, LA Kitchen, you know what has been one of the most touching stories you know that really left an impact on you and you know. And you just said to yourself, like, this is this is why,
0: like, this is why I did this. You know what's wild, man, is I'm reminded of this because last night I watched the episode of No Reservations where Tony came to DC Kitchen. Yeah, and you know we had we'd known each other spent you know enough time so we were doing our stuff, but he wanted to really spend some time working with a guy in the kitchen, and uh, we recommended this one guy, Bo. And it's funny because Bo told the same story. But one day I'm sitting in my office, man, and it, it was—it's a lot like the room we're in now. You know, it's—it's it's next to the kitchen, mm-hmm. but—and you know, you hear sounds constantly. Yeah. But there was a there was a sound I heard multiple times a day. That finally I went out, and Bo had this enormous set of keys on his waist—an enormous set of keys,
1: like those janitorial
0: ones. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, like little dude, like <laughs> seventy keys, you know. <laughs> and at one point, I mean, I had heard it, but suddenly it just clicked, and I went out. It's like Bo, 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 come here, come here, come here. Dude, what what's up what with these keys? You know, man, you can't have that many locks in your life. And he's like, "Oh, dude, you have no idea what these keys represent, because I was locked up for 25 years, and you know, for a long time in my life, nobody in my family, no one I knew, trusted me with a key because I was a dope fiend, I was a you know, I was a thief, I was a liar. Now people trust me, and these keys, you know, I know where every key goes, and every key represents I've regained people's trust. And I was like floored, man, because it's like. You know, I just was, you know, I was busting on him for what was a noisy thing, Mm -hmm. yet it was so fucking poignant, dude. You know, that that, the the, the simplicity of what keys represent to someone and the simple idea that people trust me again, you know. Mm -hmm. So, man, I I could spend days talking about the amazing people. I mean, um, there's a woman who just passed uh, this year who was uh, very important in my life, but Mary Ann Ali had been a 25-year heroin addict in D.C., and got clean, went to culinary school, came to volunteer, and one, two, three years later was in charge of our training program and shepherded thousands of people through the, the D.C. Kitchen Job Training Program before she passed um, of cancer last year. But again, a 25 year heroin addict um, who was able to you know, not only rebuild her life but in, in almost Harriet Tubman-esque imagery, guide thousands of people um, through that. So, you know, it's that, that notion that no one's so far down, they can't climb back up and no one's so weak that they can't help somebody else out along mm-hmm. the way. Mm-hmm. That to me is what is the takeaway for me that everybody has a role to play. Everybody has a gift, a skill, and we're all kind of on the same journey together, man. We're fragile vessels, just trying our best to figure it, figure it out, man. And the power of food, uh, can be a powerful compass to get people to see, um, a powerful way they can live their
2: life. Well, Robert, I feel like we could sit here and talk with you for hours. Uh, you know, it's been an awesome conversation. You absolutely inspire me, and I know uh, you know the folks listening mm-hmm. uh, are, are very inspired as well. Yeah, know,
1: yeah. Thank you so much for your oh, time. Oh, dude, I'm
2: so honored for the opportunity. Again, yeah.
0: man, mad props for what you do, and glad you can come and visit us. Today. And
1: hopefully, some of our
0: listeners and ourselves
1: can come and volunteer on one of these weekends and make a found, the founder hour kind of like you know. Yeah, we'll put out a
2: little message on how to get involved. Yeah, right on, man. That would be great. We'd yeah. love that. Of course. Thanks, Robert.
1: Thank you so much.